My mom's mom, who I called Nana, because she was uh, born and bred Australian. She was born and raised on a farm in Queensland and um, married, she was a war bride basically. She married my grandpa when he was stationed there in World War II and then came back on a separate boat from him and they settled in Northern California. And uh, she was in her early 70s when my grandpa passed away. And over the next decade of her life or so, she had at least one man who courted her, who pursued her, who was interested in her, who wanted to marry her, and who proposed to her, and she turned him down. And her reason for doing so wasn't because she was old or wasn't because he was old, um, but her reason for doing so, I think on the one hand, was just a deep and lasting love that she had for my grandpa, Um, But on the other hand, I think she truly believed that even though my grandpa had passed, she had never really been released from the marriage covenant with my grandpa upon his death. And so, in a sense, as a widow, she believed that uh, getting remarried, even though my grandpa was dead, that getting remarried would be tantamount to unfaithfulness. And now, as, as you think about that, you're like, well, that's not quite right. And as mistaken as she might have been, I would just say this about her, that her view of, of covenant faithfulness was a million times removed from what our view is today, or the, the common view of covenant faithfulness today. And I, and I would argue that even though maybe her view or her perspective was not technically correct, even biblically technically correct, I would argue that her view is a million times more accurate than our view tends to be today in regards to marriage and marital covenant faithfulness. She was a neat lady. I miss her. Um, and with that in our mind, just with that story in our mind, I want, I want that to kind of lead us into our passage for today, which is in Matthew chapter five. We're, we're studying through the book of Matthew And specifically right now, we're in Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount, where he lays out really a a, a picture of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And so listen to these words in Matthew chapter five, verses 31 to 32, where Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's heavy. I told my wife, I told Carrie yesterday, like if if people are like looking for a reason to leave the church, they might find it today because we're talking about divorce. So I don't don't know that any of you are thinking that way, but uh, this is just one of those hot topics. It's a difficult topic to handle. But here's the thing. This This is a topic that Jesus brings up, not just once, not just twice, but in three of the four gospels. And in fact, this is only one of the two times that he handles this topic in the gospel of Matthew. So it's not just a random misplaced couple of verses that somebody accidentally dropped into Matthew chapter five that don't really make any sense. These, these words of Jesus actually flow from what came before when Jesus was talking about adultery and when he was talking about lustful intent and his, his view of, of why 
adultery is, is such a big sin and why marriage is so important. It fits in with this flow of thought. Jesus' teaching on divorce also, in the cultural context, was one of the most clear, practical teachings that he makes. And within the cultural context, it was among the strictest views of divorce amongst Jewish teachers and Jewish rabbis. So, so many Jewish religious teachers of Jesus' own day um, gave permission, and this was most of them. I'm not talking about just a, a minimum or, or a small number, a minority. I'm talking about most rabbis gave permission to men, and that's an important point. Give, they gave permission to men because marriage at the time was kind of male-dominated. They gave permission to men to divorce his wife or a man to divorce his wife on any grounds. You burnt my toast. You're out. I like that other woman better. You're out. Any grounds a husband could divorce his wife. So Jesus, in, in contrast to the majority opinion of his day, was actually in the minority. And he was on the, the strict end of the pendulum in regards to divorce. So, so why, though? Why is Jesus such a stickler on divorce? Why is he so countercultural, even in his own culture? And to answer this question, what we're really gonna do this morning is, is look at Jesus' more in-depth teaching on divorce which takes place in Matthew chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, I'm gonna ask you to turn over there where Jesus takes really the nugget that he has given here in Matthew chapter five and expands on it. So Matthew chapter 19, verses three through nine. And there's really four points here that I wanna articulate that come out of Matthew chapter 19. Now this is a story where Jesus is with his disciples and some of the Pharisees come up to him and they ask him this. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now that was the majority opinion and the Pharisees, we know, were really good, and the scribes and the Sadducees, too, they're really good at testing Jesus. And usually, that doesn't mean that they were being friendly about it, that they were just giving him a pop quiz to see if he got the right answers. They were coming with, 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 loaded, um, with loaded questions, basically. They were wanting him to answer a certain way so that they could trap him or trick him or get him into trouble. And um, in this rather liberal and widely held view of divorce of the day, a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Now, in the Roman world, uh, this right was beginning at this time in the first century to be extended even to women. Now, you, you remember the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist got in trouble for bringing up divorce with the king. King Herod had taken his brother's wife, his ex-wife, as his own wife, and John the Baptist told him, you can't do that. That's not lawful for you to do. Well, that landed John in prison, and it ultimately landed him without his head, right? It, he ended up dead. The Pharisees knew this, and it's quite possible that they were attempting to, to paint Jesus into the same corner so that they could do away with him and get him in trouble with Herod. But here's his answer. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In verse four, here's what Jesus says. He answered, have you not read? And that's a um, rhetorical question, assuming yes, they have read Genesis one and two. 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus alludes here, he points them back to Genesis one and two. He alludes to the creation story of God creating mankind in his image as male and female in Genesis 1.27. And then he, he directly quotes Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So he's getting back to God's creation design. He's saying that our understanding of divorce should be based on that, not based on Deuteronomy, which we'll look at in just a couple of minutes. God's creation design, his intention for marriage is a permanent covenantal union between a man and a woman. And this union is so intimate, it's so close, it's, so, it's such a connecting union that it can only be described as one flesh. Two separate persons with two separate bodies actually becoming one new biological spiritual organism. That's the picture that Genesis gives us and that's what Jesus is saying. This is, this is what marriage is. And if this is the fundamental understanding of what marriage is, then divorce is like ripping flesh apart. It's, it's like taking an organism and breaking it into two. Divorce destroys something whose, whose very nature, the very nature of marriage is unity, and divorce comes and destroys that unity by dividing it. It's rending flesh. It's killing an organism that God has created. It's like ripping somebody's arm off or their leg off. So Jesus makes the point that the covenant union of marriage is not a man-made reality. It's not some kind of contract that you go down to the courthouse and sign. It is a God-created, God-ordained covenant union. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus makes clear then that marriage is not a, a union of convenience. It's not a legal contract between two independent parties. And, be, and because marriage is bigger than us, the rightness or the wrongness of divorce, Jesus says, it really doesn't have anything to do with how you're feeling or what your desires or wants are in the moment. This has to do with God's design. It's so much bigger than we are. It has everything to do with God's good design, his good intention for human flourishing in marriage and with the deep, beautiful seriousness of the marriage covenant. God is, or excuse me, divorce is not part of God's creation design. And now Jesus will go on to say in verse seven that divorce actually rises from the human hardness of heart, from the hardness and sinfulness of, of the human heart because his detractors aren't done. They're not really happy with that answer. And so, and so they're wondering, okay, if God's intention didn't make room for divorce, then why in the world did Moses say uh, that we could? And here's what, and in fact, the law of Moses seemed to demand divorce. In verse seven, he says this, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? 
Now, Jesus, back in, in Matthew chapter five, mentions that certificate of divorce. You've, you've heard it said that if you want to divorce, divorce a woman, give her a certificate of divorce. And so to, to understand that, we have to actually go all the way back to Deuteronomy. You can turn there if you want, but I'm gonna have it up on the screen. And this is the only place in the scriptures where, other than with Jesus's conversations here, this is the only place where this is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And here's what it says. I'll just read the whole four verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or... If that latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, the first one, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. What an interesting few verses. Right, a little, seems a little obscure, and you kind of go, okay, what? what? So I'm not, I'm not gonna unpack that whole thing right now. But there are a couple things that I want you to note as we look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees here. And the first is this, that Moses never gave a command about a certificate of divorce. So the Pharisees say, why did, why did Moses command this? And, and Jesus will say in a minute that Moses didn't command it, he allowed it. Okay, so there's no, there's no command there, first of all. And as we'll see, divorce was present in Israel due to hardness of heart, not due to God's command. Second, this particular law, as odd as it sounds, is actually protective in nature. It actually gives the divorced woman rights that she wouldn't otherwise have, legal rights of protection in that, in that document, that certificate of a divorce that she wouldn't otherwise have in that culture. culture. So this, this commandment actually sets some boundaries and defines consequences in the aftermath of a divorce. So I'm not gonna unpack that anymore. Just leave it there and you can have fun with that in your own study this week. But he says to them, okay, when did, when, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And, and here's what he responds in Matthew 19, 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, he didn't say commands, he allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning of creation, it was not so, but because of the hardness of human hearts, because of the sinfulness of sin, because of our exceeding stubbornness, God allowed divorce because, I think, we'll see in a, in a little bit, because he was protecting vulnerable people. Jesus is clear then that this so-called commandment is not a requirement but an allowance and it's, it's ultimately is a heart issue. It's a heart issue that's due to the hardness of heart. So, so culturally, marriage was a male-dominated institution. Men could do whatever they wanted and women were basically treated like chattel. They didn't have many rights. They couldn't fend for themselves or provide for themselves very well. So a man could kick his wife out of the house for any reason whatsoever and she had no rights to defend herself. She had no social capital to be able to support herself. If she was lucky, uh, she would have family members who would, who would take her in, but that was not always the case. And she also left 
this man's home with a tarnished reputation. So she was often seen as damaged goods. And in her desperation, she could find someone to marry. If she could find someone to marry, she had to remarry them just to even survive. And so in one sense, she's forced into remarriage. But if worst came to worst, nobody would take her in. She couldn't find someone to, rem- to, to remarry. The last resort would be that she would give herself up to prostitution. And that was the case. That's what would happen to women when men threw them out on the street. And oftentimes, a divorce certificate would become then her only legal and practical protection in that case. So she could show that she was verifiably divorced and perhaps get remarried. So you see, divorce certificates were required by Moses not because divorce was required in certain situations, but to curb the destructive impact of hard hearts. They were allowed as an act of mercy for the vulnerable women in this society. Divorce comes from the hardness of human hearts. And Jesus goes on to say, too, that there is one biblical ground for divorce. He says this in verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And as he does in Matthew 5, Jesus here makes one singular allowance for divorce, sexual immorality, which was a very broad term. It covered a lot of things, but most often, most likely, it meant here adultery. Now, Jesus did not require or command divorce in this situation, but some rabbis did. But why would Jesus allow for divorce then in the case of sexual immorality? Why in the world would he give that loophole? Because we are people who love loopholes, aren't we? And we'd love to find them and, 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 and figure out where they're at and make sure that we get into them. But he gives this loophole, he gives this reason, and he doesn't just give it willy-nilly, he gives it very purposely. And it has to do with, as we've seen, it has to do with understanding, his understanding, the biblical understanding of marriage as a lifelong covenant, one flesh union between one man and one woman. The the Apostle Paul brings this same idea uh, when he says that a man who sleeps with a prostitute becomes one body with her in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 16. Here's what he says. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, here you get, again, quoting Genesis chapter two, the two will become one flesh. So sexual immorality, specifically adultery, What it does is it brings a third party into an exclusive relationship and thereby defiles it. So a relationship of two, a unity of two, and all of a sudden what adultery does is it allows someone else in. And and, and adultery, the physical act, creates a new one flesh union. Thus, it does serious damage to the original one flesh union. That's why adultery is so destructive because it destroys covenant. So when Jesus gives an exception to divorce based on sexual immorality or on adultery, he isn't saying, okay, everybody, here's your out. Here's the loophole. If you're you're bored in your marriage, then you've got an out. Here it is. No. What he's signaling is that Adultery, which is surely a sign of hardness of heart, if nothing else is. 
that this, that this adultery is, is sadly a covenant-breaking offense. And because adultery breaks a covenant, because it violates a covenant, because it does damage to a covenant, the person who is not at fault is freed from their covenant obligations. But as we'll see in a minute, even in that situation, divorce is not the only alternative. Now Jesus goes on to say, in the last little bit here, that groundless divorce causes adultery. So he gives, this, he gives room for adultery to be a cause for divorce, and, and this view of covenant and covenant breaking really begins to give us a clue to what Jesus means back in Matthew chapter five, where he said this, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in our, in our logical minds, that doesn't always line up. But we really have to follow Jesus' logic here. Here's what he says in Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So if we have in mind Jesus' understanding of marriage as a covenantal union, then these words should begin to make sense. Because what Jesus is essentially saying is that in a marriage where a covenant has not been broken by adultery or by death, then divorce is not an option. Why? Why is it not an option? Because there's still a covenant in effect. And just going down to the courthouse and signing on a piece of paper does not end that God-ordained one-flesh covenant. It's not a contract. It's not something that can be nullified by two consenting parties in government approval. It is a covenant before God. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So follow the logic here. In a divorce where it, the one flesh covenant has not been violated, if followed by remarriage, Jesus is saying adultery is taking place. You put your wife out because you don't like the way she cooks. She gets married to another man because that's what she has to do in that culture. You've then caused adultery because the original covenant union is still in place. Now here's the important point. In the case of a groundless divorce, that is a divorce that's not, the, it, it, that doesn't happen in a case of sexual immorality, then the marriage covenant is still in place. And remarriage after divorce is an important issue for discipleship because we live in a culture, even within a Christian culture, in which no-fault divorce and easy remarriage is quite common. In fact, the, the numbers, I, I saw the statistic just recently that for a long time, the numbers of, of those who say that they were evangelical Christians and those who didn't, the numbers of the divorce rate was pretty much the same, 50, 50%. And just recently, the, the numbers of evangelical Christians getting divorced has actually gone above that of those who wouldn't claim to be followers of Jesus. It's a discipleship issue, it's a big one, and I'm not gonna handle much more of it here this morning, but what I wanna get to after we've now looked at John, or excuse me, Matthew 19, what I really want to unpack here is what's Jesus' heart in all of this? What is Jesus getting at here? What is his heart for us? I asked the question at the beginning, why is Jesus being such a stickler? 
Right, ask that question. That's not the right question. It's just a question to get us to think. The right question is really this. What is Jesus' heart in all of this? What is the kingdom way? What is the way that he desires to, us to follow him? And what does he want for us, which is his best for us? And I want to give you a few points here. The first one is this, that Jesus loves marriage. Jesus loves marriage. As we saw last week, God takes covenant seriously. He values relationship. He is faithful. God will never break his covenants. That's the kind of God we serve. The promises he makes to us, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will keep them. So God, who makes and keeps covenant, loves and values the covenant of marriage and wants us to love and value it as much as he does. And quite frankly, we don't. We, we fall too short in this regard. And as individuals, as, as a spiritual community of believers who live in covenant with one another, we must commit ourselves to upholding and honoring the covenant unions that God gives us, especially the one called marriage. Divorce is not God's will because it's not his desire for his beloved creation. He wants the best for us. He's created us in a certain way and he wants us to live in that way. And too often, what we do is we, we come to this teaching, these couple of verses in Matthew 5, and we come armed with a flurry of, of, of like what if scenarios. Well, hold on, what about this situation? What about this situation? What if this happened to me? What if this happened to me? And, and we, begin, we begin looking for the loopholes and asking for clarification. Am I allowed to do this? But Jesus isn't, isn't answering that question. He's saying, this is what's best for you, my beloved child. So we shouldn't primarily be asking what's permitted. This is what the Pharisees were asking. Rather, for those of us who are married, for those of us who are divorced or who have been divorced, for those of us who've been remarried, for those of us who are considering marriage, we should be asking what is God's desire for me in marriage in the light of Jesus' kingdom way? How can my life best honor my king? And I can guarantee you that Jesus' answer is not, I just want you to do whatever makes you happy. That's not what Jesus is going to give us. And why? Why is that the case? Because he loves you too much because he loves and values marriage so highly and he loves and values you so highly, he loves and values you far too much to say something so foolish to you. He wants the best for you. He loves marriage and he loves you. Secondly, I think we see in this the heart behind Jesus' words is really reconciliation. The heart behind Jesus' words is right relationship. His goal is always reconciliation. So, so when faced with a, with a broken relationship, when, when faced with a troubled marriage, we tend to give up too easily. And what we're doing when we give up on marriages is we are trusting the hardness of the human heart more than we are trusting the restorative goodness of Jesus' heart. And I think we'll find that when we remain faithful to the Christ who remains 
faithful to us, we will find ourselves supernaturally able to remain faithful to one another in whatever relationship we're in. So even in marriages that have been decimated by unfaithfulness, the gospel promises the possibility of restoration. It it promises the possibility of reconciliation. And Jesus wants us to believe him in this. He wants us to believe in his power. He wants us to believe in his grace and not give up so easily when things become difficult or or inconvenient or or when, when things seem impossible. See, Jesus was convinced that God's, in God's power to soften hard hearts and bring reconciliation in broken marriages. He believed that this was always possible. And the grace and power found in the gospel is far, far greater than any of our real offenses, any of our potential offenses. And the question for us, as always with the gospel, is will we believe this? Will we believe in God's good heart for reconciliation and his power to restore even when it seems hopeless. The third point I think is behind Jesus' heart here is that Jesus cares for and protects the vulnerable. Remember, Jesus was addressing a, a culture of men who had an inordinate amount of power over the women in their lives and they could and did use their power to demean and degrade and, and abuse them. And most likely, Moses was dealing with a similar situation, and through Moses, God put protections in place to guard against this hard-hearted, sinful abuse and to protect the women who were the most vulnerable, who were the most powerless in their culture. Well, Jesus takes that, Jesus takes the Mosaic Law, and he ups the ante with his own protections, telling men, no, you cannot divorce your wife for any reason. If, even if you sign a certificate, you can't just divorce her willy-nilly unless there is a serious, legitimate reason called s- sexual immorality. But even then, Jesus is saying, you don't have to divorce her. Reconciliation is always possible. Now, as we talk about Jesus' care for the vulnerable, As we talk about his protection of the vulnerable, we must talk about difficult marital situations because hard-hearted humans can mistreat mistreat vulnerable people through unjust divorces, but they can also mistreat, mistreat vulnerable people through abusive marriages. And there have been many Christians who have guilted their spouses into staying in an abusive marriage because of verses like this. Is that Jesus' heart? I don't think so. Is Jesus' heart then for the letter of the law? Must an abused person continue to stay in an abusive marriage? Or are there instances when it would be the best, even the most loving, even the most God-honoring thing, given the human hardness of heart, for a divorce to take place? Now, remember, God allowed for divorce due to hardness of heart. He allowed them to give divorce certificates to protect the vulnerable against the abusers who would just throw them out on the streets. Then don't you think Jesus, if if God allowed for that, don't you think Jesus would allow for something similar to protect the vulnerable against the abusers who would control them and do violence against them in their own homes? I think so. Now, not everybody agrees with me on that. 
but I do think so. Now, I do have to say that I don't have time this morning to say everything there is to say about divorce and remarriage, by the way. I'm not gonna go for another hour and a half. And if you are, you're welcome. And if you are interested in learning more, we actually have a, we actually have a doctrinal position paper on this that you can have access to if you'd like to as a church. I'd encourage you to, to read that, study it, have conversations with us. And this is the last thing I wanna say. Jesus cares for and protects the vulnerable. Jesus extends immeasurable grace. I know this about Jesus because he's extended immeasurable grace to me. And many in this room are asking the question, what about me? What about, what about those of us who've gone through uh, an unbiblical divorce or, or have been remarried afterwards? And the simple answer is that Jesus loves and extends immeasurable grace to you. Immeasurable, do you know what that means? You can't put a yardstick up against it. Immeasurable grace he pours out on us, on all of us. Though divorce is not God's plan, it's not his intention, it's also not the unforgivable sin. Now that doesn't mean go out and get divorced this afternoon. Don't hear me say that. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not something that can't be repented of. It's not something that can't be healed from and, and even reconciled or, or even reversed. Plenty of Christians will do things that destroy marriages, but they will never move beyond the gracious forgiveness found in and offered to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to hear that this morning. If you're sitting there just wrestling or struggling, God doesn't want you to sit in shame or guilt. He wants you to, to bask in his forgiveness and in his love and he wants you to understand his plan and his desire for you. The hardness of, of heart that we come up against in this world will unfortunately destroy, destroy relationships. Hardness of heart will destroy marriages. And if you have been through or are going through or are ever faced with a divorce, I would, I would hope that you would find in this church, I hope that you would find a tremendous amount of mercy and grace and understanding and support in this church. I hope that here you would not find this to be a place of condemnation, but a, a place filled with compassion. Now, now, it doesn't mean that you'd find us waffling on the truth, but that you would be discipled and led in, in your walk, in the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is a perfect balance of grace and truth. And my prayer is that we would live in that together. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, it's heavy this morning. It's been a heavy morning. And we're faced with not only a broken world, but we're faced with the hardness of human hearts around us. And we're faced especially with the hardness of the heart that we find in our own selves. But Jesus, we also know that you are the giver of new hearts, that you replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, that you that you are shaping us as your disciples to follow you in your kingdom way and that that way is the very best thing for us. So, so Jesus, we pray for your grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray, uh, we pray that we would just live and walk in that and know that. Lord, that we wouldn't look behind us and see our past as, as unforgivable or insurmountable, but that we would look behind us and see the cross 
the cross of our Savior, pouring out mercy, pouring out grace, pouring out all that we need to live in abundant flourishing wherever you have us. So God, I pray that you would just, you'd wash us with your grace today. You'd wash us with your love, that we would know your presence, and God, that we would be about your ways. God, that we'd be a people that love marriage as much as you do, that people that love covenant as much as you do, that we would be people who pursue your ways in every area and aspect of our lives. So God, empower us, give us grace, give us mercy. May we follow King Jesus for his glory. Amen.